Thank you everyone for joining us today. This is our summer quarterly tea. We've gotten through the first two quarters of the year successfully. And uh, here we are today joined by all of you. And uh, if you have questions, feel free to raise your hand or you can unmute and ask those questions as we get going here. We have a, a small group today, so we're gonna try to hopefully be pretty interactive if, if at all possible. And otherwise Rob and I can talk, but it's always better when we get get you all involved with the conversation as well. Uh, in addition, you're welcome to email anyone on the team with questions. Uh, you can email Contessa, Bonita, Anthony, or you can also email info at raccoongroup.com with any of your questions and, and those will get through to us successfully. So uh, with that, maybe we wanna kick it off. Did you wanna see if there are any questions on people's minds to start, Rob, as kind of a definitely, kickoff here? Definitely, since we have such a bright group with us, I'm sure there are some burning questions that made everyone show up today. So if, if, if you don't have a topic, you have about 10 seconds to think of one because we're going to call on each one of you. Just it can be anything related to anything. My question might be, has anybody figured out what is happening with inflation, including the Fed or anybody else? Great. That's that's high on Kyle's list of favorite topics. So you hit it hit it right on the head. Good to see you, Gary. Pat. Any uh, anything regarding the national debt? National debt. Somehow that's somewhere related to inflation, don't you think? Uh, probably so, because if interest rates go up, then the national debt will also. True. Okay, we'll we'll cover we'll cover that um, without getting too 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 political. <laughs> um, Camilla, any any questions for you? Any topics to discuss? Not right now. This is my uh, first uh, quarterly tea, so I wanted to just Great. see how it goes. Well, thank you so for much. joining us. Thank you. Yeah, we appreciate it. And Kyle, you'll have to canvas the rest. Great. Um, yeah, we we're just going around the room asking if anyone had questions. I know Joanne is logged on. Uh, if you have any questions, Joanne, you're welcome to unmute and, and give us any burning questions that you have. I believe we also have David on here. And uh, if you have any questions, please feel free to to unmute and ask. Otherwise, we can kind of we can dive into the first topic, which is inflation. And I, I, I do like the way the, the question was posed in the sense of, does anyone actually know what's going to happen with inflation? I, I thought that was a, a good way to pose the question, but maybe if you want to start there, Rob. Um, sure. Um, we certainly don't know, but uh, we're happy to talk about it. The Inflation has has many, many components. There's there's food, and then there's good food. And then there's uh, the cost of education, uh, public and private, um, medical services that most of us use. If you can even get in to see a doctor, that's another type of inflation, which is the availability of services. That And, and that, I think, is going to be an increasingly uh, large problem, not just the cost, but the, the, the whole demographics of the medical uh, industry in the United States, at least, and, and most other countries as well. 
uh, which is, uh, you know, very important to to everyone. So uh, when when it comes to financial inflation and reported inflation, you know, if it's instructive to look at England, which really towed a hard line on inflation and kept interest rates high, and they're they're starting to see their reported inflation go down. So higher interest rates do help curtail business activity, which decreases demand. Inflation is just more demand than goods, right? That's the definition of inflation. And since we've had, and not to leap too far ahead into the deficit, but since we've had this incredible ballooning of not just the U.S. deficit and money supply, but Europe and Japan as well, there are many, many, many more dollars or yen or euros in existence now than there were 20 years ago, probably four times as many, four times in two decades. And so inflation is the natural place for that to show itself. Does anyone know what's going to happen with it? Certainly, the Fed got it wrong when they said inflation was transitory. Now they're taking a very hard line, which I think is a good a good move to not lower interest rates. The markets love anything to do with lower interest rates because it makes stocks go up and real estate go up. That's one of the primary drivers of the relative performance of the market. So I think I'll I'll turn it over to you, Kyle, to you know kind of round out the the comments about inflation. Yeah, I think one of the big things that we're seeing is we're starting to see an easing in inflation when it comes to actual goods. So we see inflation in goods starting to slow down. That's a little bit what Rob was talking about, where we're actually purchasing things, but then when it comes to services and trying to get actual work done or go to a restaurant. Real estate, we see those prices really continuing to hold on and keeping inflation higher. And that's really what the Fed's trying to combat. We had a very complex chart <laughs> that we were looking at yesterday that we will not bore you with. But the the idea was basically that because inflation is a year-over-year measure and we had sort of a lull in inflation over the third quarter last year, the expectation is that although we saw a lower inflation print last quarter, it's likely to be higher over this next quarter because there was sort of a lull last year. And so when it's a year over year comparison, it creates that kind of bump. And uh, what that means really is just that the likelihood of the Fed's, Fed continuing their pause, which they're on right now, is probably more unlikely that they'll continue to raise rates maybe up to two times throughout the end of the year. But it's it's because we see this pause and everyone's like, oh, great, the Fed may slow down. And we've seen the stock market really on any good news this year, the stock market kind of pushes up. But it's likely the Fed will re resume raising rates in their next meeting. And we'll see at least one more raise throughout the end of the year, while then also holding interest rates higher uh, beyond this year. You know, I tend to default to palpable things about inflation. For example, two people go to a restaurant. I don't believe you can have a meal for less than $60, $70 now, which is probably twice what it was five years ago. Just the same food. You know, food is a, a very uh, important topic, of course, not to ignore what's going on in Europe. 
with real food security issues within in the Ukraine and the, the exporting of grain to the third world that Ukraine is so important to. It is, it is just hard to imagine because there is not a great groundswell of activity of new farms being formed of, of advances in agriculture. And there are a lot of people on the planet. So food inflation is, I think, something that is here to stay regardless of what interest rates do. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not within the purview of the Fed to impact food prices, commodity prices, you know, oil prices for that matter. Those are very important things. Housing prices, the Fed has, has a, a, some effect on, though it's, it's delayed because as, as interest rates go up, it's very expensive to get a mortgage now. And so young people are priced out of the market. The expense of getting a new mortgage is very high and, and very difficult. And banks are not doing a lot of lending. That's one of the things that Kyle and I watch is the, what banks are doing in the commercial lending business, because obviously a, a lot of people have the, some of our private investments that are doing lending in the commercial space. One of the very clear investment trends is the movement of business loans away from banks to private lenders. And private lenders are very small, like Alfie, to very large, like, like hedge funds. And that, that means that the normal government governance of credit doesn't happen the way that it used to. So um, that's not necessarily a good or a bad thing. It's just it's, there's kind of a market privatization. I look at the banks now as extensions of the government. The banks were bailed out several times. They are very restricted to what they can do. They have unrestricted parts to do with trading. But not regular banking is, is so highly regulated, they're essentially instruments of, of the government. And, and they do fine. They make money. But, but the entrepreneurial money, the lending that, that America needs to grow is coming from elsewhere. And well, it, I was going to say, I mean, it used to largely be handled by regional banks. And what we saw is people gained access to capital from regional banks. And anyone who has been watching the financial news will have seen, obviously, back in March, we started to see the failures of certain regional banks, uh, people that really did the lending to local entrepreneurs and with that, you saw other regional banks have to start tightening their belts a little bit and reduce lending. So they were, they were the main place where people would access capital. And with the kind of raising of interest rates and worries about bad commercial debt, uh, largely in you know, large office buildings and things, you, you kind of created this tightening where they were unwilling to lend because they needed to shore up their balance sheets, which is they needed to have more cash on hand in case anything happened. Uh, And so they're less likely to make loans with your deposits. And then in turn, you have this tightening, which then someone has to find access to capital somewhere. And that creates the need for additional kind of private capital markets, which is what Rob was talking about. Thanks for that explanation. I think that's good, good background information. So when we look at the future of interest rates and the future of inflation, which is 
where I think the questions go to is what do we do about it? It's hard to just take traditional steps and say, well, okay, I'm going to buy a simple ladder of bonds and that will keep pace with inflation. Or I'm going to buy a piece of rental real estate and that will appreciate along with providing cash flow. Those those were kind of traditional approaches that diversified approaches as, as well as stocks because stocks are always uh, adjusting their dividends to adjust to inflation. It's very hard to know if that's going to work like it has in the past because it certainly has. People with financial assets with the ballooning deficits and a period of low inflation, high inflation, the standard of living of people with excess assets with portfolios has increased. There was a fascinating article about how people in Europe, by and large, are poorer now than they were 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And people in the U.S. are working people, professional people are by and large better off than they were 10 years or 20 years ago. And it had to do with a very simple fact, a very simple difference is that whatever you believe in, in terms of values, Europe values leisure time and social safety networks higher than they do entrepreneurial activity. It's if we value assets over time, right? That's the, the kind of always the argument is that when they talk about Europe is that they take long vacations or they have a they have a nap time, their siesta in the middle of the day and they take time off of work. And so there's the value of your personal well-being and then there's a the value of assets. And I think that's if we were European, that's the argument that we would be making is that, well, all you Americans do is work while we actually have this this kind of health and you know well-being in our minds that we're more concerned with. Yeah. Education might be like that too. Higher education in Europe is by and large, if you're in your own country, is by and large very, very cost effective. Um, and I don't know if that's the case here. Certainly not necessarily not private universities. I don't know how the cost of public universities in the US compares with European. Uh, but I think in Europe, pretty much anyone who wants to go to college can go to a, a university. I don't know what they do there. Uh, maybe they value their personal quality of life and discuss things. So let's see. Kyle, did we have other topics that we were going well, to talk about? Uh, Gary had asked about the national debt, what we're going to do and. So I think that was our next topic here. We did see a continuing of growth in the national debt over the past quarter. And that's been the the trend for kind of an ongoing period, right? As we know that as we did the major stimulus during COVID and we sent out money that the national debt continued to grow, as you mentioned, knowing that interest rates are now higher. So every time we issue additional debt now, it has a greater expense because we're issuing new bonds at higher rates. And when you make those interest payments, there's a greater cost to us in that. Let's take a step back and look at the, at the debt 
we're over 100% of GDP in terms of our debt, correct, Kyle? We're something like 104%. Um, in, in terms of, yeah, total debt, yes. We have sort of like that balance where we're able to make interest payments still on an ongoing basis, particularly with inflation, but the total debt is greater than GDP at this point, yes. So, and that's kind of one easy way to judge is a country in hot water or not. You know, th there are solutions to the national debt. It, ha it has to do with defense spending, social safety net spending, uh, the tax structure. All, all of those things impact the deficit. You know, I, I don't really know where the leadership comes from to address it. Obviously, everyone is going to need to tighten their belts. People will have to pay ta higher taxes and get less benefits. It's like Social Security. The system just is not on a sustainable track. And But anyone who tries to fix it gets deep-sixed pretty quickly. So nobody tries to fix it, which makes problem larger i was just going to say there's no political incentive to fix anything right is that if you you may take a stand against uh social programs while also looking to add funding to the military and without sort of going across the border maybe you you know maybe you want to cut military but then you want to have more social programs that give to education and all of those kind of balance out and then we never end up actually cutting anything right is that there's a there's a give and take constantly so the question is what's the end game there what happens with an unchecked national deficit where we are just incapable of cutting back spending where we're spending more than we make so to speak as a country than we produce well in in aggregate right i, I think during our our weekly investment committee meeting this last week, we were talking about a company and we we're reviewing their bonds uh, just to get an idea whether or not we thought their bonds were a good buy. And, and as we always do, right, we check their interest coverage, which is a ratio where you get to look at, do they make enough money to make their interest payments? And the answer is, in this case was yes. And we felt it was a high interest coverage rate, which was good, right? And But as a total debt perspective, the company has as much debt as their company is worth, right? But they'll, what they earn now, they'll always be able to make their interest payment. And as long as someone else is always willing to give them more debt eventually to refinance it, they're able to constantly kick the total debt down, down the road to a later point in time. As long as you can make your interest payments, you get a refinance and extend it. And it's a little bit like that's where the U.S. is at now, where we, I mean, we saw it with Greece several years ago is that Greece couldn't, they got to the point where they couldn't make their interest payments. And Europe came in and said, largely Germany came in and said, we'll refinance your debt for 50 years at a low rate, and you'll be able to make your interest payments for a while. But right now, the U.S. can make their interest payments and we keep refinancing them by buying more treasury bills. You know, however concerning it is that we spend more than we make, the asset base, as Kyle was just describing that company, right? The company has, let's say, I don't know, let's just say $100 in debt. 
and they have $100 worth of assets. So that, or a million dollars. If you look at the US, the US might have, it has $30 trillion of debt. The annual interest payments are probably 2 trillion or something like that, or uh, approach that would be 6% or something like that. But what is the value of the assets that the US economy and the US government owns? It's way more than that. If you think about the natural resources, the cultural artifacts, I mean, the US is not in danger of going bankrupt. It's run like hell, but we're so fortunate in that just our natural forests, parks, uh, museums. Yeah, workforce, tax base, all of those things, military. Right. They're all, they all have true value. Not that there's necessarily a buyer, but we do have assets to sell. So I guess between the, the last T and this one, there was this thing called a, what was it? Uh, Raise the debt limit ceiling. The debt ceiling, yes. Yeah, do you remember that? By gosh and golly, I can hardly remember it, but it did. It was out there. Go I was ahead. just going to say, leading up to the debt ceiling, our phones rang nonstop here, and the day after they increased it, we were like checking our phones to see if they still worked. We thought that that. No clients were calling because they were mad at us or something, or our phones weren't working. But it really was. It was it was real anxiety building, and then then it changed and went away. And and the, the whole thing is really just a political football. So we're very fortunate. So I, I think the deficit is just a a sign that we really lack direction and consensus and leadership and a direction in the country. That's just how it is for whatever reason. And I'm not sure it hasn't always been like that. If we read the newspapers from the 1820s, we probably would get the same sense of a fractured America that we do today. I'm not that detailed of a history buff, but I know that people have always treated each other pretty loud, you know, pretty badly in Congress. And so it's just kind of a messy democracy aspect to it. And uh, hopefully, you know, we get through this. You know, one of the other topics we wanted to talk about was artificial intelligence, AI, which relates to what I'm starting to talk about, which is if you look at people who are trying to lead the country or make policy, they're all intelligent people, or most of them are intelligent in, in some way, shape, or form, but they're they're tied into a, a, some kind of media machine that they have to feed. And so where's the opportunity to, to, to make compromise, to have face-to-face -face dialogue and, and to move ahead with something that's in the national interest. And that's getting harder to do with all of the information that's out there that people are so fragmented and people read what supports their current opinion, as opposed to being challenged and having a dialogue with someone who disagrees with you, you know, really disagrees with you and, and believes and you li listen to them. So 
that, that those kinds of skills that we learn, you know, kind of making our way through adverse situations, whether it's school or work or family, that is the ability to have an intelligent dialogue with someone who feels differently and to reach a plan that makes sense together. That's, that's kind of what we're hoping happens somehow. But AI is, I don't know, that's, that's just kind of a lead in to talk about the, the volume of stuff that might not help that dialogue happen. I think when we look at AI and what we've already seen in the limitations of products like ChatGPT is that there's a bias that gets introduced through simply volume of information, right? And so as it takes in information, depending on the amount that it reads and gets or what it's kind of used to gathering from the internet or research, what you end up with is you end up with a natural bias, right? And so that's what's occurring. And that's what we see sort of in politics, right? Is that you have this bias that is regional in nature, or you support your very direct kind of voter base, and that's your bias. And and AI is only kind of led into that. And so there's a big concern over, okay, how do we actually remove these biases from AI? We've seen it where they ran tests with AI hiring for employees, where it favored certain types of candidates over other types of candidates without without even realizing it, but just having sort of a structural bias from the underlying data in which it was able to gather. Um, and we see that that's sort of, it's in politics, but it's being introduced into the computers and it'll make it even harder to kind of overcome into the future. What's the benefit of AI other than people not having to think and they can sit back and relax? <laughs> well, I think... I mean, the biggest benefit are the efficiency gains, right, is what you're always looking for. And that's been the kind of the perpetual goal in society since, you know, since forever, right, is the invention of the wheel allows you to move more things around your farm and get get work done. And the industrial revolution changed the ways in which we produce goods. It's It's a question of when does AI actually create those real efficiency changes for us? that that a difference is made from it right is when do they make us all better and more productive uh or does it just remove thought right and that's always a that's the risk that you're talking about is that does it actually make us regress society from a place where we're at now to less thought so i suppose i guess if you look at the medical field and you're trying to research potential treatments for something for someone that that AI should efficiently tell you all of the places and general terms and define and explain what medical treatments might be available throughout the world. That would be an efficiency, correct? It should be, yes. We saw it. We had a we had a client who sold a company, right? And he had an AI company which test uh, tested machinery parts. And they were able to build, say, a bracket for a vehicle. And AI would go on and it would test and say, how can I make this bracket stronger using less material? And it would use different configurations. And then in the end, it would 3D print this product. And you could actually test it to see if it was as strong as you wanted it to be. 
but using fewer materials, right? And so what would have taken us, you know, months and months to do, this was doing in, in a day or a week, and then you're able to test it and see if it actually works. And so that's, those are where the efficiency gains would come from, is that you add this into society, and then it's like, now I don't have to worry about that. I can worry about how do I make my vehicle more fuel efficient, or how do I find other resources to, to make these vehicles? But what we end up with is a vehicle that's totally dependent on computers and you have to take it to a specialist with a special computer to figure out what's wrong with it when something goes wrong. Yes. Who's happy with that? I, I don't buy new cars for that very reason. We can't be afraid of that. Oh, Gary, please. No, oh, I was just going to say that I can still remember how to roll up and down a car window, but yes, you can't get uh, that car anymore. Very few, if any, with the roll down window still, the manual roll down. Robert. Yes, Robert. Yeah, I follow the biomedical developments pretty well. And as Rob said, that's really a huge area of potential advance uh, right now. And it's going on day by day. You can hardly keep track of it. Um, AI that predicts protein structure from gene sequences or that picks out new pharmaceuticals for uh, receptors that are already known but they can't deal with yet uh, that will cure a disease, for instance. And so that is really huge. And from my point of view, and I I used to do a neural network AI in my lab. We had a whole room full of uh, servers. So I have some feel for it. The, the issue in biomedicine is that you have really good input information to begin with to give to the AI. Problem when you get outside that is, uh, I mean, outside of kind of hard science, um, you get a lot of junk that the AI then incorporates. And so the result from a particular question or issue in AI one time may be quite different from the one you get the next time. Same question. Yeah, so it, it can be a real problem depending upon you know, what the material is that's being used. But uh, in some areas, uh, particularly molecular uh, biology and so on, uh, genetics, it's going to be tremendous. Um, the other area is epidemiology. Um, just to give an example, a big AI study that was started at the VA in St. Louis, half a million uh, patients. These are mostly guys, so they don't represent the U.S. entirely, but they studied using AI um, their conditions that preceded the onset of pancreatic cancer. And then this was compared to a standard population in Denmark, also about a half a million, and they discovered one major thing. Um, the rest of them are kind of minor and, you know, AI noise, but they discovered some major things. One of it was a particular type of diabetes. And so that was like a, a major discovery. And that's just an example. I think one of the, one of the things we read about, we had a great article in our, in our stack there, Rob, is it just talked about the barriers to entry when we look at innovations now. And so what you had where we sort of mentioned this idea of the wheel is, it's very easy to be like, that makes sense. And you could go out and you could copy the wheel and people then have wagons they can pull. And 
that barrier to entry. Now, when we look at AI is that you're creating these efficiency gains that really are favored only to those with a lot of money that have access to create those, they're called like the processing units or GPUs. And in that you really have that barrier to entry is largely just the biggest tech companies that can actually afford to delve into it or large pharmaceutical companies that maybe they give out processing power and allow that access to research facilities. But uh, really they, the limitation is that us as kind of normal folk, we can't just go out there and, and start doing AI. We really need that computing power. And so that barrier to entry is where Rob talks about, like, it doesn't make us all more efficient, right? Like we lose that thought process because it's really controlled kind of by the few at the top. Which brings us to kind of the stock market and what's Mm -hmm. been going on in the stock market is tied directly to that, that point, right, Kyle? Very, very much so. It was actually, I, I pulled up a stat just in relate in relation to AI and the stock market before talking about the stock market really is there's a, in there, they took a moderate portfolio of equity investment. So you take, you take a portfolio, broadly diversified, large companies and small companies, and 90% of your AI comes from just the mega cap companies, those top five companies in the S&P uh, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, NVIDIA, and Tesla as well. They make up the majority of all kind of AI investment right now. And even if you went down a couple more levels, you have, you know, Meta, which is Facebook now. And so all these really mega huge companies that are driving the stock market right now, they control, you know, almost all the AI investment in which the ways we can invest in it uh, largely. Uh, now there's going to be small companies that maybe get some resources that have innovation, but really most of your AI is coming from those mega companies. And with the excitement of AI, the markets have really kind of taken off to start the year. Even with rising interest rates, uh, we see, I mean, the S&P was up about 18% through the first half of the year, which was pretty astonishing as people were still really nervous to start the year. We saw the S&P kind of take off running. Uh, uh, S&P, I mean, the NASDAQ was on a, on a whole other level. The NASDAQ, which is more tech-based, tech and financials, they overcame kind of the worries in financials. And then NASDAQ 100 was up 35% through the first half of the year. Uh, which was which pretty outrageous considering they the, they were the worst performer last year and so they they had a little room in the recovery to go through but as we the people really worry about recession fears rising interest rates the cost of goods we're seeing the stock market take off this year uh, it's been it's been I mean we never want to be mad that the stock market goes up you it it certainly will make you a little nervous here and there, but when it goes up, you can, you know, we're always accepting of that kind of that progress that it makes, certainly. Uh, but a little bit of that where we mentioned the majority of the gains through the first quarter came from those mega tech companies. Which are the AI companies. The They're the AI companies. In AI, that's the tie-in. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, that's what the market believes in as the future. Uh, the market's been known to be wrong about certain things. Um, well, it was, it was inter- the market started to price some more 
upward activity in other sectors through the second quarter. So the big winner in the second quarter was consumer discretionary. So that's your your tooth, toothpaste and toilet paper for, for those playing at home. And so we saw consumer discretionary go up about 15% through the second quarter. So it was starting to shift a little bit away as I think people are trying to feeling a little bit better, better about the markets in general and investing in other sectors. Any questions about AI or? I have just an observation. In, in my opinion, the bottom line, it is going to happen. AI is, is real. It's going and it will move forward. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. It, it seems like it makes systems more complex and dependent on some functioning that if and when or however frequently it goes off, then people will be even less capable of providing X, Y, and Z, whatever that might be for themselves. I I guess it's kind of like when our cell phones don't work, we get a kind of a strange, insecure feeling about it. I I have cell phone separation anxiety as bad as anyone, believe me. You know, it's like, I don't even worry about my wallet anymore. It's just my phone. Which is also your wallet in some cases. <laughs> yeah, right. Not for me, thank you very much. I, <laughs> you know, the fact is that the dependence on AI for efficiency, it's a little bit like the global, remember the global supply chain, how great that was the last decade, not this decade, but the last one, I think it was, how it made the price of all consumer goods go down, right? People... Some people lost their jobs, some people gained jobs, but there's a lot of things now that the U.S. just doesn't produce. It just flat out doesn't produce enough of certain things. And so, you know, I'm not making any judgment about it. It's just as we as we get more sophisticated, we get more interdependent and the systems get more complex and Maybe that has produced more people with more leisure time. And that's supposed to be a good thing, I guess. It's been occurring since the beginning of time, right? Where you were a small group of nomadic individuals who wandered and you hunted and you gathered. And then you realized that if you work together, you could farm and have hunters all the same and start to build out societies and communities. It's That's the progression that we've gone through forever. I'm going to get a bumper sticker that says, I love AI, sort of. (laughs) Sort of. (laughs) As you say, Gary, it's here to stay. And then you won't even get anybody in the Philippines to talk to. You'll just get a computer. There'll be no more people to talk to. Mm -hmm. Where will they all be? There are more people, but they're not working. Where are they? They're at the beach. (laughs) Okay, that's why I don't go to the beach. It's too damn crowded. (laughs) (laughs) We have other questions. We have a few minutes before we wrap here. I just wanted to see if there's other questions from the group. There was an earlier remark about the demographics of the medical industry. And I wondered, um, it's certainly something uh, Pat and I have experienced in terms of availability of physicians. But I'm 
wondering, in terms of the state of New Mexico, where do we sit within that territory in terms of the demographics? In other words, doctor availability, cities, Las Cruces, Los Alamos, uh, not El Rito. We hear El Rito has like the best dentist in the state, or it used to have the best dental clinic. That's the rumor that I heard. Yes, we do have a very good dental clinic. But the medical side of the clinic closed. I say, you know, we we had a client who has uh, an ear problem. And they tried to get in to see an ear doctor in New Mexico. And their earliest availability was in a year. They just, there just was no availability in Santa, I don't know if it was Santa Fe and Albuquerque. And uh, so they're, they're going to Los Angeles to, to find a doctor. There, there was a, I was going to say, you know, there's a recent sort of quality of life survey that goes around and it ranks different states and New Mexico, actually, while we still rank in the the lower quartile of states, they did have an improvement when it came to service availability, but we're still, we're still near the bottom, right? Is that we started basically at the bottom and we've been improving, but we're still, still lagging behind the rest of the country. And a lot of that will just be sort of decisions around economics and the economics of the state. And, you know, do you live in a rural area and provide services or do you go somewhere else and, and make more money at the same time. Does some of that have to do with the educational system? It did, yeah. They ranked all these different categories uh, in there. But certainly when we think about access to educational systems where if you're you're having to import the majority of your workers in the in any field, right, you're already facing sort of an uphill battle in that sense. And so uh, a lot of our talent will leave the state and there's a lot of kind of, there's a talent gap in the state as well. Yeah. Uh, doctors, you know, elder care, uh, geriatric doctors, there's a shortage of certainly, I don't know if it's demographics of the people who are, you know, the size of the medical schools if there's a, a particular reason why the, the medical associations want to restrict the number of physicians, um, there are more physicians assistants, nurse practitioners now who play a bigger role for many people because of that. New Mexico has licensed naturopathic physicians as primary care physicians uh, eligible for insurance reimbursements because that's what my daughter is and she you know she and I participated in in the efforts to get that license and that's that's happened here in New Mexico I think the specialists are are more of a problem than general doctors Camilla I I saw you had unmuted so I, I didn't know if you had a question that you wanted to get in and wanted to give you that opportunity here in regard to the we were talking about the AI and where have all the people gone? I, my question is, how much does the change in the age demographics, in other words, there are less births and less younger people, how is that affecting part of I mean, is that a part of it? There are less workers, in other words, mm-hmm. <laughs> unless, unless we, you know, allow more immigration. 
we actually we had an article that talked about this that leading up to the tea here and one mm-hmm. of the things they talked about is that you see largely birth rates declining around the globe right yeah right and so you have this sort of global problem that you need higher birth rates to keep productivity up mm-hmm. and the question is is does something like ai actually replace those those workers that you're losing right to increase productivity to e enough but uh, I mean, the article was generally pessimistic about it is that without kind of changing some of the def- demographics that we continue in kind of a difficult path forward uh, mm-hmm. from everything, right, from social security to availability of workers, uh, all these things that kind of make us a little bit better off. Good. Any any final questions, thoughts? I'll take hopes and dreams as well while we're while we're at it. Oh, Katie's got one. Quick thank you to you guys, all of you, for putting this on. Just hearing people's thoughts, getting a little update from all the brains that read so much while I'm out running around doing gardening and taking care of critters, and he's doing construction. You do all the hard stuff. So thank you. Thank you, Katie. You're uh, uh, we appreciate you, Katie. Steve, I know you got on late, so we're happy to have a conversation with you uh, later on. So uh, thanks everyone again for joining and we'll, we'll all touch base again soon. The Raccoon Group is comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data or information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. The Raccoon Group and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties, expressed or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. The Raccoon Group and Hightower Advisors LLC assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in this document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the author, do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates.